being together here, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? I mean, coming together and worshiping Jesus, focusing on Him and the Word, this is a valuable, great time for us to come together. Church is meant to be a lot of fun, but there are times where church is not always fun in the sense that there are at times hard things that need to happen. Times where sin might begin to creep in, drift in, where sin needs to be dealt with. It's not fun to have to deal with it, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is seeing such an account and situation where sin needs to be dealt with and a little spiritual surgery is needed. There were a couple boys that were sitting on uh, a bed outside the operating room of the hospital ready for having surgery done. The first kid looks over and says, what are you in here for? The second kid says, I'm here to get my tonsils taken out and I am pretty nervous about it, freaked out. Well, the, the first kid says, you got nothing to worry about. I had that done a, a while ago and they put you to sleep. You wake up, you get jello and popsicles. It's a breeze, it's quite awesome. And then he says to the other kid, what are you in here for? And that first kid says, I'm here for a circumcision. The second kid says, wow, I had that done when I was first born. I couldn't walk for a year. <laughs> and I am hoping and trusting that you're all gonna be walking out of here just fine after this message. But we have to understand too, that sin has a way of coming and affecting and compromising our walk with the Lord, where it's going to affect us to where sin needs to be dealt with. Not only personally, but sin has a way of affecting the whole group, the whole church. And Paul is addressing such a situation here. We're gonna see in this outline here, chapter five, Paul's confrontation to sin, verses one to three, his counsel in sin, verses four to five, Paul's correction at sin, verses six to eight, and Paul's clarification of sin, verses nine to 13. So it says in verse one, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So he says here and identifies this specific sin. Now, Paul's been addressing sin in the church here. Verses one to four has all been about Paul addressing the way that these people at Corinth have been dividing, bringing divisions based on who they've been following and pledging kind of their allegiance to. They've all been propping themselves up by who they've been propping up, saying, we follow this guy, he's the right guy, you've got it wrong. And so they were prideful, they were bringing division in the church. Paul's been having to deal with that and address it these first four chapters. Now he really begins to kind of hit home a little bit more personally because he's addressing now a very specific sin at work in a very specific person in the church. But he's seeing how this is having an effect on the church as a whole. This sin, he says, is, is, it's sexual immorality that's being reported among you. That word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, where we get our word pornography. This speaks of any kind of unlawful or unnatural sexual sin that takes place. Any sex outside of marriage is unlawful and unnatural. Now understand, sex is not bad. The Bible gives us great parameters of how we can enjoy sex, but it's meant to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in the confines of marriage. God's ordain this to be something that's a blessing for a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in marriage. Anytime it's taken outside of that context, it's not going to be blessed. It's not what God has intended it for. And it's gonna to lead to harm and hurt and lives 
we've seen when, where we see a culture that has just been inundated by porneia, we see a culture that has not been living in health. It's, it's destroyed lives by abusing this precious gift that's meant to promote life and not pollute it. And so Paul is addressing this now and he says that this sexual immorality has been seen through a man who has his father's wife. See, a man to take his father's wife in this way was strictly prohibited in the law. God's already defined that this is a wrong, bad thing. Leviticus 20 verse 11, for example, says that the man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now, this wasn't something that was being done secretly or privately. These two people weren't, people are just trying to kind of hide it and not let this, you know, come to, this was something that was known. It was being talked about. The King James says it's reported commonly, meaning that this was making the rounds. People were in the know and they were talking about it. It's reported in a common way. This wasn't hidden. It was very open. Now it's believed that this woman was this man's stepmom, that it wasn't actually his natural mother. Not that we're trying to make any better, so it's, we can give him a pass. No, I'm not trying to say that. It's believed that this man's mother had died, his father was remarried. Either way, this does not make this right that it would be his stepmom. This was still something wrong. In fact, Paul says that this kind of sin isn't even named among the Gentiles, meaning Gentiles were viewed by the Jews Gentiles were any non-Jews. The Jews viewed Gentiles as kind of the real pagan, debased people of the world. And so when Paul says the debased, sinful people of the world, when they're looking down upon your sin, you've got problems, right? When it's the Gentiles, when it's the pagan people of the world that are shamed by what the church is doing, you know you're not walking in the correct path, right? Paul said, this isn't even named among the Gentiles. And yet you as a church are seeming to be all okay with it. Paul's got to go, what is going on here? This doesn't, this doesn't mesh. It doesn't, doesn't work this way. See, the pagans of the world were very clear that this was wrong. Roman law forbade incest. They saw the crime and error in this, yet sadly, the Corinthian church was just kind of accepting and turning a blind eye to it. And Paul says here in verse two, not only were they accepting, but he says, you're puffed up. And you've not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. See, the church knew that this sin was happening, but rather than grieving in it, they were grandstanding in it. They were puffed up by it. They were, they were in a sense, kind of celebrating it. What was there to celebrate? Why, how could they ever be, be prideful in this, well, perhaps they had a warped understanding of the grace of God. Perhaps they were looking at this as an occasion to say, well, this is wrong over here, but praise the Lord, we're under God's grace. Remember how people that were combating Paul's message, when he came with the message of grace, people were saying, so what does this mean? Should we just sin all the more that grace may abound more? Paul's like, no, certainly not. Guys, you got it all wrong here. You got it all backwards. But this church seemed to be thinking this is the right way to view this. Well, this is wrong, it's sinful, 
but now we just get to see God in his grace forgive these people all the more. So we just won't, we won't call them out on it. We won't confront this. We'll just let it be. It's okay. And, and they were not just accepting it. They were getting puffed up or prideful in it as though they were the church of love and grace. Sadly, we see the same sort of reaction to sin in churches today. Many Christians today would rather tolerate sin in the name of love. Well, we don't want people to think we're coming down on them or, or being judgmental, so we won't confront people on areas of sin. We'll just, we'll just love them. Listen, I've got news for you. That's not love. It's not love to let people continue on in things that are going to hurt them. If when my kids were younger, wanted to train for the Olympics in long jump, and they thought, you know, for a bit of an advantage, we're gonna practice jumping off the roof of our house. Now I'm gonna say, guys, that's not a great idea. In fact, this is going to be very bad for you. Now they could look at me and go, oh, dad, you're just a fuddy dad. You're just wanting to ruin all of our fun. You're just a robber of fun. No, I'm, I'm actually trying to rob you of death here, not rob you of fun. They might look down on me, but I understand that this is for your good. I don't wanna allow you to do something that is going to hurt you. And yet for the church, it seems like oftentimes today in the culture that we live in, we've taken a step back and say, well, no, I don't really wanna call people out on that. I don't want them to think that we're not loving. And in the name of love, we now have churches that are, are gay affirming, hanging you know, uh, gay pride flags up in their churches saying, well, we just want to be loving to the world. And yet what's happening is people that remain in their sin are on a one-way path to hell. That's not loving, my friends. We're not called to be people of tolerance. We're called to be people of truth. That's what we're called to be as a church. And sometimes we need to speak the truth in love in ways that aren't always fun, aren't always enjoyable, that are the hard things to do, but we're called to speak the truth in love. In, in so much that you see a brother that might be walking sin where we come alongside and say, hey, I see what you're doing is not right in God's eyes according to his word. Hey, sister, that area that you're compromising in is not God's ideal for you. And I know it's going to hurt you in the end. And out of love, I wanna speak what's right and true to you. Speaking the truth in love is gonna lead us to take a stand on absolutes and on confronting sin. Something that the world... <laughs> doesn't know a whole lot about absolutes today, where anything goes today. And the minute that you begin to stand on absolutes or stand on truth, the world is gonna to wanna to reject it because they don't want absolutes or truth. But we cannot love people rightly if we're not standing for truth and standing against sin. We've seen a twist that around today in our church culture to where we don't wanna address sin for fear of not appearing loving to the world. But your job as Christians is not to make the world like you. Your job as Christians is to simply speak the truth in love. Amen. That's what we're, we're called to do. Now, we, we pray that as we speak the truth in love, they will see a, a caring, loving person that wants the best for them, wants God's best for them, and wanting to spare them from the hurt that we know sin is gonna lead to. But yet that's not the final goal is to say, well, we wanna do what we can to make the world like us. That's not the final goal. 
is to speak the truth in love. And while it's true that the Christian family is one where we're to be enjoying fellowship, church should be fun, there are times where it might become like a funeral, where we grieve over those that are in our midst that have fallen into sin and, and the, the hard things that we have to do to bring that kind of correction. But this church wasn't doing that. Paul says, you've not rather mourned. And by mourning, they, they, it should have been like a funeral to them where they're, they're grieving the loss of somebody that's continued in this path. It should have brought a reaction that moved them to action. And that action was to do what? Was to correct and confront that person. And with that, Paul says that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now that, that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Maybe you've been thinking, man, I've, I've done some things this past week that aren't great. Does that mean I'm to be disfellowshipped from the church? No, not at all. It's, it's true that we all are, are prone to sin and that we're gonna fall into sin, but it's an entirely different thing to be engaging in sin. And that's what Paul is addressing here. A brother that is willfully continuing on in this lifestyle and in this practice of sin. When the Bible says there in verse one that a man has his father's wife, it's speaking of this ongoing relationship that's taking place. Nobody's calling him out on it. Nobody's correcting it that we know of. He's continuing on in it. And this begins to help us out a bit when we look at bringing correction into matters like this. We don't act as strongly over areas of weakness or momentary stumbles. Like if you're driving to church one day and you just got so irritated at somebody that's cutting you off and you're just like, ah, you're in the flesh. You don't show up at church and we go, sorry, can't come in today. Yeah, we've been told that you got a little bit of road rage, so you're gonna need to just go back home. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna say, you know, please don't have road rage in the church here among one another. But, you know, let's see that nipped in the bud as quick as possible. But we're not gonna just, that's not the case here. We understand that we're still in the flesh and there's, there's gonna be times perhaps where we feel we don't have to. There's times we might stumble and, there, and there's, there's grace and forgiveness in that. But this is dealing with a person that has been willfully remaining in this area of sin. We're gonna look more at Paul's kind of direction and, and, and counsel for that here and what he means by putting them away. But understand something too, that all this here now, we're dealing with those that are believers. Understand that, okay? Uh, this man alone is being addressed, not the woman. It's believed that this woman is not even a believer, which makes this all the more worse. But this woman is not being called out on that because it's believed she's not a believer. And, and those that are in the world, well, they're not in Christ. We don't hold them to the same standard. If an unbeliever comes into our midst, we don't sit there and begin to pick apart their life and all their sin and go, what's the matter with you? You gotta fix this, you gotta do it. No, they need to come to Christ and allow the Lord to do that work in their lives. We don't confront them the same way we do a believer because there's a different standard for the believer. So this man is being addressed not the woman. This is not something that we deal with with unbelievers. And some churches have made it very uncomfortable for unbelievers to come in. If we have an unbeliever come in and, and they might just be the, the biggest sinner you know of, I'm glad they're here because they're gonna hear Jesus. They're gonna hear the gospel. And that's what we want. We want them to hear those things and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to change their heart. Don't begin to correct and confront them and, and, and judge them, they're an unbeliever. They're, they're, there's a different standard with them as there is with the believer. So Paul says, 
for in verse three, for I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done or so done this deed. Though Paul wasn't there physically, he's come to know the details of this situation and realize that there's a, a call to action or a cause for action. Paul says, I've already judged him who has so done this deed. Now, some of you, if you have good memories and you're reflecting back on the message we shared last week in chapter four, you might be looking at what Paul's saying going, hold on a second, pump the brakes a little bit. Because in chapter four, verse five, Paul says, therefore judge nothing before the time. And now Paul says, I've already judged this guy. Wait, what? Paul, were you, isn't that hypocritical? Aren't you contradicting yourself here? What do you mean you've already judged this guy and yet judge nothing before the time? How does that compute? How does that work? Paul in chapter four, remember, he's dealing with those that were making judgment calls on people without knowing their heart or their motives. Paul's not doing that with this guy. Paul is looking at the fruit of his life. Remember in Matthew 7, verse 1, everybody loves to quote this verse. It's, the, it's the, the unbeliever's favorite verse to quote, judge not lest you be judged. How many people love to say, don't judge me, man. Yeah. Now we recognize, no, we're not to judge the world in this way. But Jesus goes on in Matthew 7 to say that you can evaluate their fruit. You will know them by their fruits. And he's speaking about those who are claiming to be in Christ, claiming to be believers, I should say. And so we're going to know them by their fruit. Paul isn't judging this person based on the heart issues of things. He's judging on what is evident in their life and what is in contradiction to God's word. That's the standard that we use. And when we line people up against the word of God, then we get to have a pretty good indication of what they're doing, whether it's right or wrong. If I see somebody after church, and they're going through the cars with a Slim Jim, and they're like trying to jimmy a car open and steal a car, and there's somebody in the church, I'm gonna go up and say, what in the world are you doing? They can't turn around and say, don't judge me, man. You don't know my heart. I'm gonna, no, I, I, I don't know your heart totally, but I recognize that there is some wickedness in your heart because you're trying to steal a car, and we know that's not right. So I don't walk away and go, you're right, I can't judge you. I don't know your heart, so. Have at it. I'll see if I can get the keys for you. Maybe it makes it easier. I don't walk away and just let it go. It's like, we're going we're gonna to judge that because it's blatantly contradicting scripture. That's what Paul is doing here. Warren Rispey says, while Christians are not to judge one another's motives or ministries, we're certainly expected to be honest about each other's conduct. So there are times where it's a blatant contradiction to scripture by which we need to come and call out a fellow believer in their sin. Paul had no problem passing judgment because it was what was needed ultimately to help this brother. And so Paul goes on now to give his counsel of how to handle this sin. Look at what he says here in verse four. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. First of all, notice Paul gives some good criterion for judging. It's to be done when you are together, 
when there is the gathering of the saints. And this is where the gathering of the saints is so important, why we are not to forsake the gathering of the saints, because there's something wonderful that happens as we come alongside one another, we get to encourage, we get to edify one another, but we get to help one another when there's situations that arise that are not healthy and good. And Paul says, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's to be that kind of right biblical standard of righteousness that's exercised there. And this means here to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to, to follow this kind of practice of dealing with someone in the nature and in the character of Jesus Christ. How would Jesus do it? We do it not in our own wisdom. We wanna hear the Lord's heart in this. We wanna carry out his ways. There's no room for you know, selfish motives or our pride in conducting things this way. In the same way, we don't come down hard on someone that we need to confront and counsel regarding sin. Just as the Lord, we're so thankful, does not come down hard on us in condemnation. He comes with conviction to correct us and he comes in grace to lead us back to him. That's the heart and the purpose. That's the Lord's heart and that's the heart that we wanna have. Judging in the power of Jesus is to remove our human tendencies from the equation here. Now, Paul says something pretty heavy here. He says, deliver such a one to Satan. Now, that might seem kind of harsh, doesn't it? We go, whoa, man, you've just taken a big leap there, Paul. Like, couldn't we have taken baby steps of addresses? It just seems like you just jumped right over all these little, maybe practical things we could have done and just gone right to the deep end and like hand them over to Satan. We go, that seems pretty heavy, pretty harsh. What, what do you mean by this, Paul? Well, understand, again, as we're, as we're gathered together, as the church body comes together and operates the way we're supposed to, there's a wonderful protection and power that comes in our midst here as we walk together, as we encourage one another. Sometimes we're spared from attacks and, and harm because of the protection that's brought on by the body of Christ as we gather together. Something, a, a dynamic at work here as we come together that's so wonderful and blessing and fruitful. And Paul understands that this man if he is put out from that body of Christ and the protection, is not gonna be under that same protection. He's gonna be isolated from the body. In other words, he's gonna be an open target to the enemy. Now, the purpose is not to destroy the person, but to destroy the flesh. That's what Paul says, hand him over, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's not speaking of the physical body. It's not like, take this guy out, man, just annihilate him. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, for the destruction of the flesh, the, the, the sinful nature, the, the impulses of the sinful nature of the flesh, that that might be destroyed, that this person might begin to see, man, there's nothing good that comes from the flesh. I had a good when I was there among my fellow believers in the church. And I'm away from that now, and this isn't comfortable, this isn't good. I, I need that, and it draws him to repentance ultimately. The purpose is not to destroy the person, but to destroy the flesh. That's something that should have happened long ago. Galatians 5.24 says, and those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That should have been the case already. Sadly, some Christians need a little help with that. And so Paul's desire was to have the flesh kind of beat out of this person, to bring them to their knees and to see the error of their ways. I think of the prodigal son, right? A great example of that, the prodigal son wants to receive all of his inheritance from his dad. It's almost like saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me what is coming my way. And he goes off on his way, 
to just live it up thinking this is what's really going to make me happy and he goes and he begins to spend all his money to the point where he's got nothing left he ends up in a pig pen and what happens it's like he comes to his senses and he's like i had a good in my father's home this has brought me to nothing that's paul's heart here he wants this man to be brought to the end of himself brought to nothing to see that i've got a good in the lord and among the 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 saints i've got a good why would i ever want to continue to walk in the flesh when there's nothing good that comes from it the goal of church discipline is always restoration my friends that's paul's heart here not to just condemn him and, and turn him away but to bring him to the point where he's ready to repent and then can be restored paul continues on this correction at sin here in verse 6 when he says your glorying is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump again Paul says, why would you glory in any of this? What do you have to boast about? There is nothing good coming out of this. Now, we talked about the Christian community providing that protection for one another, but that community can be compromised when there is sin in the camp. So Paul talks about leaven. Leaven in scripture is a type or a picture of sin. You see, leaven or yeast as we would call it today, works its way through a batch of dough to cause the bread to rise or become puffed up. Remember, Paul says in verse two, you're puffed up in these things. You've allowed sin in, not only in the church, but now in your own selves, you become prideful of these things. So that leaven works its way through the bread to puff it up. And it only takes a little leaven, right, to work its way through the whole batch of, uh, or lump. It just takes a little bit. You have a little bit left over. You, you can pass it on to somebody, use that, and it's going to permeate its way to that whole batch of dough. What happens is in that process is, is there's actually like this rottening effect that takes place. The dough rises as the leaven ferments and releases gases that cause the bread to rise. Right? And as leaven speaks of sin, we know that sin has a rotting effect among the body both personally and the body of Christ corporately. It just takes a little bit of sin within the body to begin to work its way through and bring a, a corrupting work. Achan is a great example of that. Achan was a man in the Bible that, as the nation of Israel was led in the promised land, first up is Jericho. They got to take down Jericho. God miraculously delivers Jericho to them. And the next up is Ai, the smallest city that they're thinking, man, if we've seen Jericho crumble, Ai is going to be nothing. We're going to steamroll over this city. But they were told, take nothing of the treasures, the accursed things in the city of Jericho. Take nothing. But Achan gathered some of those things and he buried them in his tent, thinking, oh, this isn't going to hurt anybody. I'm just going to take some of these things for myself. This doesn't, this doesn't affect anybody. But when they went up to Ai, what happened? They suffered a great defeat. They're all going, how in the world did we fall to Ai when we took down Jericho? And it was revealed to Joshua that there was sin in the camp. Achan has taken some of these things that he shouldn't. He disobeyed God. And you see, Achan's sin affected the whole. That's what can easily happen. We need to look at sin like cancer. We don't turn a blind eye to cancer. You have a... a you get a diagnosis of cancer, you don't sit there and go, oh, that's too bad. Well, hopefully it'll just kind of work its way out. You know, we'll just, ah, don't, won't worry about it. It'll, you know, it'll deal with itself. You know, we don't, we don't look at cancer that way. We go, I'm going to do anything I can to get rid of this. I'll go through 
chemotherapy, radiation, I'll do whatever I, I can, I'll go on a strict diet. If I can just see that cancer removed, we deal seriously and strictly with it. And that's the same way that we need to deal with sin and yet so often, we like, say, ah, you know, it's sin. People are people, right? And we can easily dismiss or overlook it. When we need to deal with it like, like cancer, Paul is saying, don't you know that it just takes a little bit and it's gonna work its way through and affect the whole. Therefore, he says in verse seven, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Paul now is gonna tie in the, the feast of Passover and look at how the, the traditions and practices from that observance relate to and, and correlate to our walk in Christ. When he says, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, Paul is looking back to you know, Passover. We just studied this in, in, on our last Wednesday night service, going through Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 goes through the first Passover. And they were told that on that night, 14th and Nisan, they're to take the lamb that they've brought in their home, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put on the doorpost. The, the angel Lord is gonna pass over your house and spare the firstborn. Anybody's got the blood on the doorpost. But then he says, and then after that day in the 15th and Nisan, you're to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread. You're to take that dough and you're not to put leaven in it. You're to clear your house of leaven because they were to be ready to move. As soon as the Lord brought deliverance, they were to be ready to move and not wait for their dough to rise with leaven. They were to have it without leaven so that not waiting, they would be able to make uh, you know, haste in their exodus out of Egypt. And it's a great picture for us as believers. Christ has delivered us. He saved us. He spared us. He's, he's brought us out from bondage and slavery to sin. And he's purified us so that we no longer have to live this life of sin any longer. But how often do we see, oh, that's great, but then continue on in this life of sin. It should not be that way. The Lord's done the work of, of delivering us and we're now to be living as believers who are in Christ, no longer marked by our old nature. The, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And notice what Paul says here in verse seven. You truly are unleavened. He doesn't say, hey guys, work now to become leaven or unleavened. He doesn't say work to become a new creation. He's basically saying, you are unleavened. So now live like it. You're a new creation because of what Christ has done, so now live like it. Half the battle is in realizing who we are in Christ. You are unleavened, how? Because what does Paul say? Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Jesus came and died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that we can be forgiven, cleansed, and no longer bound to have to live in that old nature. We've been made new. Christ has done that. It's not a work that he's waiting for you to do. It's the work that he's saying has been done for you. Now live in it. Enjoy that life. Romans 6, verse 6 to 7 says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. In other words, Paul is saying, be a new lump, for you are. You're all just a bunch of lumpy people in Christ. <laughs> Embrace it. So Paul says in verse eight, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, 
nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, this is not a feast for us just to celebrate now one week of the years as the Jews did. This is to be an ongoing celebration because we rejoice in this new life we have in Christ to where now our practice should be matching our position in Christ. Our position in Christ is that we've been made righteous now in him through faith in him, cleansed of sin. He sees us as righteous. So that's your position in Christ. May your practice be in line with where your position is in Christ. Your life should demonstrate this change that Jesus has brought about. Lastly, we look at Paul's clarification now of sin. Verse nine, as he kind of gives some last little bit of information here. He says in verse nine, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. So interestingly, Paul had written a previous letter. If you were here with us in our introduction to this book, we saw that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote. We don't have the first letter. We don't need the first letter. It's not as though the Bible is missing part of its literature. No, it was not something that was gonna be part of the Bible. Here's what we have 1 Corinthians, but it's the second letter Paul wrote to the church. In the first letter, he says, I've already told you, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. But here's the problem. The church of Corinth thought, oh, okay, we're gonna now just isolate ourselves from anybody that's not walking in this holiness of the Lord. We're gonna separate ourselves completely from the world. They took it to the extreme where they're like, oh, all right, the world, no, no, we don't have anything to do with them. We're gonna just cut, completely cut them off. We see them you know, on the street, we're gonna turn and go the other way. We're gonna ignore them. That's not what Paul intended. He says, I certainly do not mean with those that are of the world. Because if you wanted to cut yourself off from people in the world, what did he say? You'd have to get out of the world. You're gonna have to join Elon Musk and fly up to Mars or something like that. Like, you gotta get out of the world. That's not gonna work for you here. That's not, that's not what Paul has in mind. And sadly, so many Christians have lived with this mentality like, I've gotta just separate or, or cut myself off from the world. The Bible doesn't call, call us to isolation. The Bible does call us to be separate from the world, which means to be different. Not, not avoid, because we wanna live in a way where we can demonstrate Christ, we can teach them about Jesus, we can share the gospel with them. We want to be in relationships with people in the world so that we can draw them to the Lord. But we gotta do that in a way where we're being different. And sadly, again, the church is has gone the other way where it's like, well, we just want to be like the world. We don't want to address it. We don't want, we don't want to scare the world away. So we're just going to be as much like them and just condone anything that's going on. And they've gone the opposite way. Paul says, no, you can do this not by isolation, but by being different, showing them something better. He says in verse seven, but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So Paul defines that this thought now is that this is speaking of our relationship with one another in the church, with fellow believers. And it's with fellow believers that you're to take this kind of action, not with people in the world. There's a different standard there, but with people in the church, we're to take such action to the point where if somebody is walking in willful sin, not willing to repent of it, don't even eat with them. Just completely say, sorry. We can't be in proper fellowship here if you think you're okay doing this. Now, I need to 
cut you off, not to your hurt, but ultimately to your restoration. I want you to see the error of your way. So Paul's don't even eat with them. Eating with people in this day was such a, an intimate affair. It was a big deal. So Paul says, don't even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, inside the church, he says. But those who are outside in the world, unbelievers, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So Paul brings great clarification here to us, saying we're not talking about our relationship with the world. We're talking about our relationship with one another in the church. God will take care of what's going on in the world. Thankfully, God will judge all that. God will deal with that. You don't have to worry about that. But worry about what's going on. And then put away from yourselves the evil person. Deal with it because why? Sin is going to have a way of permeating through and corrupting others. And it's not going to be to the health of the church. How we need to put those things away. Now, as we need to wrap up right now, and with these instructions that we've had from Paul, don't begin to think, okay, yeah, I haven't been doing my share of confronting people. I'm gonna look now. I've actually got a list that I've been building as you've been speaking, Brent, and I'm gonna right away now, as soon as those doors open, I'm gonna go after people and say, I think even that's not what we're called to do exactly either, okay? Don't get that wrong here. We're to walk in love for one another, not in a condemning way, but there are times where there needs to be a, a correction brought for their good, but we do it in a way. Warren Rearsby says this, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it's a group of brokenhearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore erring members of the family. That's what we are. We're, we're all prone to sin. We're broken people. We understand, oh, thank the Lord for the grace that I've been given. I'm no better than anyone else. But when I see a person that is walking in a way that's detrimental to them and to the church, help me in grace and humility to come alongside them as much as I would want them to come alongside me and show things that I'm doing that are out of line and inconsistent with the word of God. That's the way we need to approach it in humility and grace as a fellow broken person saved only by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. And then Jeff's gonna come and, and wrap things up here for us. Thank you, Lord, for our time together as a church. It's so sweet to gather together and just to worship you and fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for each person. May we continue to grow together and grow in, in like-mindedness and, and having that mind of Christ in all these things. And Lord, we don't wanna be on witch hunts over picking out every little fault, but Lord, we wanna come in care and love and grace when we see something that is inconsistent with your word that's out of line knowing that that has a way of bringing destruction in the church satan's satan's at work to destroy the bride of christ lord may we not allow that to happen may we not allow the enemy to even get a foothold an inch may we cut those things off and come and bring correction when it's needed but to do so in love and grace may we be a church that's healthy that's strong and that's living as an example and witness for the world to see the blessing that we have in you, Jesus. So I pray these things in your name. Amen.